We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to preface this by saying this has kind of been the challenge for me going into uh, 2 Peter altogether, but especially into this week, is uh, I don't know about you, but I, I, my wife and I tend to be fairly, fairly simple people. Anybody else in here fairly simple? Uh, when I look at my life, if you come into my house, um, if you like things on the wall, then you will be very frustrated with my house because our house is very white and simple and very minimal, and we, we like things very simple. Uh, when, I, when I first came to know Jesus and I started reading the Bible, I actually read the Bible literally. I'd open up the Bible and I'd read it, and I'd just want to see Jesus move as I would read in Scripture. I, I didn't find all these details and these caveats and these twists, and I didn't look at it as difficult to come to know Jesus, but as something that was very simple. And as we look at the Bible in its totality, um, it, it frustrates me when people complicate the message of Jesus, when they like to make things very difficult and confusing for others, because I think if we were to look at the whole of Scripture and kind of divide it up into four acts, let's say, um, you'd have this act of creation, uh, you'd have this act that was the fall, you'd have this act of redemption, and then you'd have this act of restoration. And I think that as we read through Scripture, if we can understand that there's just very simply, there's four kind of acts. Um, there was creation. God created all things. There was the fall. There was um, Adam and Eve in the garden, and sin entered into the world, and there was this downturn of sorts, and God continued to pursue man. And then we see in the New Testament that there's this pursuer that God sends in the form of his son Jesus to come after us, and we see this redemption opportunity that comes through Christ's um, body broken and his blood shed for us, and the res his resurrection from the dead being that which would empower us to live these lives for Jesus. But then there's this future promise of full restoration, of God returning everything back to its original intent. And so as we read through scripture, for me, it's easier for me to see things in a very simple manner and, and understand that this isn't complicated. Um, we, we like to complicate things and make it very confusing, and it's not, the message itself is not confusing. But I want to ask a question this morning, like when you read the word of God, do you walk away unchanged or do you walk away changed? Because very simply speaking this morning, I think that when we engage Jesus, we can't leave unchanged. There's a work that Jesus does in us. And so my simple mind says, um, okay, God, if, if there's this promise that we would engage your word and we would hide it in our hearts so that we would not sin against you, there's something powerful about partaking in the Lord's word. And, and so... When we look at the message that Peter is sending to the church, I think that these messages are very simple. He's not saying get all your theology right, understand all of your doctrine, memorize all of scripture. Um, he's trying to get a handful of things laid out in a very clear and concise manner because Peter is nearing the end of his life and sending his kind of last hurrah, his last message to um, the, this church and he's reminding them of the things that are important. Now, 
my wife's mom is nearing the end of her life, and one of the conversations that Heather and I have continued to have is the fact that in the grand scheme of things, when somebody is at the end of their life, does all the junk and all the arguments and the rifts with relationally with others and everything, that, does all of that matter at the end of your life? No. And we overcomplicate things so much. And so Peter, again, is bringing about some very clear and concise things, some very simple points to the church. But one of them that he's continuing to bring up is this idea that Jesus is coming back. That restoration is still to be had, right? Creation happened, the fall happened, redemption happened, but there's a piece of it that still has yet to happen. This whole restoration side of things, and it will happen. It will happen. And so Peter's continued reminder to the church is that Jesus will return. His return is imminent. And I I wonder for you and I how often we read the word um, and and we make attempts to engage Jesus so that we can learn and and we want to educate ourselves about scripture. But learning And education doesn't always produce change and modification in our life, does it? We can learn and we can educate ourselves, and I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm saying we learn and we educate ourselves in order for there to become modifications, for change to happen, to apply what it is we learn. And Peter's continued message to this church is take what you know is truth and begin to apply that. Because Jesus didn't pay the price for you. He didn't die this brutal death. He didn't raise again from the dead just so that you can live the unchanged life. There's something powerful about holy living that's offered to the believer that would put their life and their, their, their trust, their heart in Jesus' hands. Anybody in here documentary fans? Anybody like that? I love documentaries. It's like... I do not have, I'm very ADD, I do not have an attention span for movies. Uh, You can ask my family about that. We went and saw the latest Avenger movie and about an hour in, I'm like, oh my gosh, just end this thing already. Um, But documentaries are different for me because I can sit down and watch a documentary and there's something educational about it, there's something challenging about it to me. And I often think... um, when I, wa- when I watch documentaries and I learn a ton and I feel like I've stored something up, something that I've learned from something that I've watched, um, does it actually change the way I live? Does it change my worldview? Does it change my perspective? Like, it, is there something beneficial to what I'm partaking in? And when it comes to our faith in Jesus, why are we here this morning if we plan on leaving here unchanged? Why do we do what we do if we plan on living life as usual without allowing Jesus to permeate through every aspect? Why do we do it? And I think at at the end of Peter's life, he's kind of going, this is what matters. All the other junk and the the issues that that you guys had, none of that really matters in the grand scheme of things. What matters um, is the fact that Jesus is coming back and you need to live your life in such a way that your Um, living holy. You're living in the power that he's offered you, that you are living as though he will return. But many believers, even at this time, were living as though Jesus wasn't coming back. They waxed and waned. I mean, like, I I was thinking about the Jesus people movement. Some of, how many of you here in this room were part of that movement at all? Okay. 
So go back to the late 60s, right? The Jesus people movement. You had all these hippies like coming to know Jesus, radically getting saved and being pulled out of a lifestyle that like Jesus was, they honestly knew what salvation was because they were living something completely other than that. Jesus saves them. And for the duration of the Jesus people movement, if you've um, studied up on it at all, um, a lot of the Jesus people during that time were convinced that Jesus was coming back like very soon, right? He, he was like, it could be within years that he was coming back. So now fast forward 50, 60 years later, now um, there's a lot of people that have fallen away from the Lord that were part of that movement. There was a fervency in their living for Jesus and being convinced that he would return that has since waned. And over time, they begin convinced, maybe some of them have even become skeptics and doubters because it's like, well, we thought Jesus was coming back in the 70s and uh, Jesus did not come back in the 70s and so maybe he's not coming back at all. So what, why should we continue to live these lives uh, our lives any differently than we lived prior if Jesus isn't actually coming back. And so this is some of that stigma that Peter's addressing here in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. And so uh, if you turn with me, 2 Peter chapter 3, let's read through the first nine verses there and then dig into it. He says this, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Listen to his words. And imagine them coming from a man who's nearing the end of his life. That, um, you know, there were seasons of Peter's life when he was just as stupid as the next guy and pulled some really idiotic moves. Um, seasons in his life where he doubted the Lord himself. Um, but Peter knows what it meant to taste of the Lord. And he saw Jesus face to face. And so here's this man that's wanting to encourage future generations of, church, of the church to stay on the straight and narrow. And he said, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And I just, if there's one prayer I had going into this morning, it's, again, this idea that we would be stirred up by this. That we cannot leave here unchanged. That our lives have to be lived differently, our perspective is different, our worldview is different based on us having encountered the living God. And Peter's coming from a place of encountering him and now encouraging those who have never seen Jesus before to continue to live for him because he's tasted of him and he's encouraging them that it's good, that, that you can live for Christ, that he is real and that he actually is returning. And so he says, Beloved, the, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind means that without, any, without hidden motives, when he says the sincere mind, a mind without any motives, to stir up your sincere mind by way of what? Reminder. By way of reminder. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the, command, the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. 
For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So to dig back into this, at first glance, it seems maybe a bit strange um, that Peter's so far into this letter, and now he's going to reference the fact that um, this is his second letter to them, um, written for the purpose that it is. And so he's already nearing the end of it, and he's saying, um, the second letter I'm writing to you, and he's, he's referencing the this, this second letter when he's almost finished writing it. Uh, but Peter already declared in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, his desire and his readiness to remind them, if you remember this, of the things important to them to keep in focus. And so if we remember that, then when we realize that he is only repeating himself here um, for emphasis sake, he's only reminding them to remind them, right? He's repeating what he said. Like there's something about remembering where you came from, being reminded of what, what, what God originally stirred up in you so that God can stir that up again. And he says, this is now beloved. And when he says beloved, he's not saying from himself to them, like, like out of his own love for them, but actually out of Christ's love for them. Beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And notice that in both verse 13 of chapter 1 and then here in verse 1, um, he uses this term stir, this term stirring. Uh, from the same word that actually me- means to awaken or to arouse, to, to stir up is to wake up. Have you ever uh, been like half asleep and, and half awake at the same time? <laughs> Anybody? Okay. Uh, a couple nights ago, it was late and I was like zonked out, dead tired, and Heather woke me up briefly to have a conversation with me. And, uh, and we supposedly had a, a, a conversation and the, the next day, she mentioned something from this conversation, and, uh, and, and, and she said, I talked to you about that last night. I went, oh, really? I, I don't remember that at all. Like, I was so tired. I, I don't remember that. And I think in Peter's eyes, this was the issue that he's facing, that he's challenging people with, that people were coherent, but possibly on the brink of spiritual death. Awake, but asleep. If that, if that makes sense, spiritually asleep. And he wanted them reminded and to recall the truth and to be stirred up again. And in all of us, even as sincere Christians, like people with no hidden agendas, um, he, he, he's calling his readers when, when he says to stir up their sincere minds, that there's this tendency to focus on the physical world around us and, and slumber, so to speak, spiritually, that we, we have this tendency to focus on everything going on in our life, but spiritually to be 
wasting away, to be dead, to be half asleep. And so we read a book or an article or we hear a sermon or we, we attend some sort of conference in, in, in which the, the focus might even be on this imminent return of Jesus and we get excited about it and we feel like maybe Jesus could come at any moment and then what happens for, after a little while? After a little time passes, we start to wane a little bit and we start to fall asleep and we start to live our life with less fervency than we once had. And this is the issue that he's coming against in this church that he's challenging them them with, that Jesus is coming soon. Be stirred up to think about those things. And so um, the, the people of the early church had really believed that Jesus was coming back. I mean, they, they, they believed it so much that, that they even greeted one another with this word, Maranatha, which meant, our Lord come, Lord come quickly. And this is how they greeted one another, because they believed that the Lord was coming. And, and so the, the apostles, Peter included, lived in expectation of Jesus' return, and they believed the promise that he had made to do so. And so in, in the, the whole of the New Testament... Only the book of Philemon and 3 John um, make no mention of the return of Christ. 27 books in the New Testament and only two of them don't mention the return of Jesus. How important do you think that message is? Of utmost importance, right? Because we don't believe that Jesus just came to save us from this world. What do we believe? That he's actually coming back for his church to deliver us from this world, to bring about full restoration, to bring things back to the way that he intended them to be, for us to live eternal lives with him in glory in heaven. And so this is, this is like the, the core of the Christian belief. And so if we do not think that Jesus is returning or we live our lives in such a way that we sort of discredit his return, what is the point of living the life that we're living now? Because we're actually not living it for here. We're living it for what's to come. It's the reason why we've entitled this whole message Future Hope, because there's this future hope. We partake in a portion of it now. We live with one foot in the, in the world on this earth and one foot in heaven, but there will come a day when you will live with both feet in eternal glory. Amen? We live for this. We live for this. As my mother-in-law's body is wasting away, we take joy in the fact that there's coming a day very soon where she will spend eternity with Jesus. And we know there's a day when Jesus is coming back and he will actually judge the world. I mean, it says, uh, later in this passage, it says that... um, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. But by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water, formed by water, flooded and destroyed with water. But by his word, the present heavens, the skies, and the earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. This is serious. And for us to live as though 
this is just a possibility, or maybe it's going to, I mean, that just, to me, that's just not enough. So here, Peter, as he begins to bring this letter to a close, he expresses this desire to stir them up, to wake them up, to arouse in them the remembrance of the things they already know but should not let slip away. And my prayer is that that's happening in you this morning, that that the Lord would stir up, would awaken, would arouse in you the remembrance of the things that were spoken, the truths of Jesus, be stirred up in you this morning, that you know that you know for certain that not only did Jesus die for your sins and give you this gift of the empowerment of his Holy Spirit by his grace, but that he's also coming back for you. And specifically, he mentions the words of the holy prophets, of the Lord himself, of the apostles, that all pointed to this occurrence. So he said that you remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, by the commandment of the Lord and the Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. So just remember back to last week, which was kind of gnarly as we talked about false teachers. Um, Peter gave him this alert, this threat sort of of these false teachers. And I want you to picture it like this. Last week, Peter was kind of talking about a threat within the church because he was talking about people that would come up from within them, people that were part of them. And now he's talking about this threat that's actually coming from the outside. And these aren't the false teachers. These are the mockers. And when we say mockers, it's not people that are going like, ah, you're so stupid. You believe Jesus is coming back. Oh, man, you're so silly. This is not the kind of mocking that he's talking about. What he's referring to are the skeptics, the doubters, the people that are standing there going, he's not coming back. You've been talking about this for years. I mean, go back 50 years. There was a people back then, the, the Jesus people, that thought he was coming back within years, and he never came back. And now you're going to continue to believe that junk and these are the mockers that he's talking about so know this first of all that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and I think it's interesting that Peter's talking not just about something that's happening then what's he saying that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking that this is a future thing that will happen as well And it's happening today. There are skeptics and there are doubters and there are people that want nothing less than to convince you otherwise, to cause doubt, to instill fear, to get you off track, off course. And so Peter's warning them of these people. So uh, by way of contrast from these false teachers, he now says that he wants them in defense against these deceit, the deceit of the false teachers to remember the holy prophets, the Lord's teaching, the things taught to them by the apostles. And as Christians, we've actually been, uh, if we've actually been in the word of God, as we should, if we're submitted to sound biblical teaching, then we know these things that Peter's reiterated throughout his letter. Like, these don't come as a surprise to us. But we still need to be stirred up. We need to be awakened by having the truth of God's word concerning our eternal security, concerning our holy living, which we've talked about in this series, concerning staying alert against the enemy's attacks against us. 
keeping our minds guarded and our hearts pure. Again, he says that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the Lord's, the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord, Savior, and Savior spoken by the apostles. So you have to be reminded of what is truth and don't forget what you already know as truth. And so Peter continues to use this word, remember. And there's something powerful about us knowing the word. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Psalm 119 says, I've hidden your word in my heart so I might not sin against you. There's something about us memorizing scripture, knowing the word of God, instilling these truths deep down in our hearts so that when you hit seasons in your life, when the mockers come and the false teachers come yapping, that you know what the truth is and you know how to stand firm in it. But if you do not have the truth lodged deep down into your heart, if you have not hidden it in your heart so you will not sin against him, you will be led astray by the false teachers and the mockers will have their way with you. But if we believe that this is truth and we digest it and we stand upon the, the, the word of God as our basis of truth, as our plumb line, we will not be led this way and that. When the mockers come, what's our response to them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say what you want. Jesus is coming back. And actually he wants the mocker's soul as much as he wants the believer's soul. So Peter calls them mockers. Um, it's interesting. Uh, sometimes I, I think that when we think of false teachers even, um, we think of things that are so blatantly wrong. Right? They, they're teaching these just insane doctrines and things. But I want to challenge you this morning, even with regards to the false teachers, it's not always that clear. There are plenty of false teachers that have come in the last hundred years, even in our country, proclaiming Christ and even his return, talking about things like the rapture and the tribulation that are not actually teaching from a basis of truth. So not all false teachers even deny the second coming of Christ. Some, some even would believe in it, but others teach that even Jesus has already returned. I don't know if you guys... Um, have heard of the Baha'i cult, but um, th they teach that not only has Jesus already returned, but that he's actually returned numerous times, that he's continued to come back, that he just pops in for a visit every now and then. And this is their teaching. If you go online and you search the web at all, you're going to discover some really interesting teach teachings that people have taught about Jesus' return. For instance, Harold Camping. Anybody ever heard of Harold Camping? From 2004 to 2013, till he passed away, he stood on the fact, taught the fact that Jesus had already returned, but he returned invisibly and was actually judging the churches. Um, uh, another couple, as I was like doing some research online, had this crazy website, and they said this, the return of Christ with its complete destruction of the world, so widely speculated on, is not true. Rather, the return of Christ is to the hearts of individual believers who have prepared the way for him to return to them. That there isn't an actual return of Jesus, that it just happens in our hearts. These are the dangerous teachings that we can be grasped by if we don't understand the truth. That Jesus will return. And when the mockers come mocking and the, te the false teachers come teaching, 
what is it that is your basis of truth? If, if you read the Bible and you see what Jesus' apostles declared, I think it can hardly be called speculation. They saw Jesus, they heard Jesus teach, and they were convinced and knew that Jesus would return. So know this first of all, verse 3, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. That in the end, all they care about is their own desires. Peter calls them mockers. They, they come with their mocking. They foolishly declaring to be true that which is false and declaring to be false that which is true simply because in their simple thinking, that's the way they want it to be. That sounds like a really easy teaching, to be honest with you. Um, just believe whatever it is you want to believe. When it comes to people in their, in their secular professions, such as medicine or law or uh, engineering, they would be appalled at the thought of someone untrained and unlicensed in their field presuming to speak authorita authoritatively and, and, and intelligently on that particular subject, wouldn't they? Like if you just came as some random outsider and you're like, eh, I got a new thing when it comes to science and you're not even a scientist, you never went to school and the scientists are like, um, how can you speak authoritatively about that because you actually don't even have a degree, you never went to school, you know nothing about it, but you come speaking as though you have some authority in this manner. And these people would challenge a person's authority to speak. They would quickly shut them down when they discover that the person actually has no education in that field. And yet believers are being led astray and being mocked by people left and right, speaking from the outside and convincing them of things that aren't even truth and aren't spoken of in the word of God. He goes on to say this. Verse 4. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep... All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So there's their mocking. Where's the promise of his coming? Because everything has continued to move forward just as it has from creation since the fathers fell asleep. Um, and, and it's just the same as it's always been. And people use the same argument today. He says, verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water. Like, what is it that escapes their notice? That God created all things. That it came out of water. That Jesus, or the, the, that the Lord actually birthed us. That he caused the heavens to exist, the earth to be formed. And then God actually used water to destroy to get rid of a whole population of people that were ungodly and then it says verse 7 but by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of godly men now that sounds super gnarly but there is coming a day and time when it says that Jesus will be the one to separate the sheep from the goats that there is a judgment to come and we like to preach this love message of Jesus, and it is about love. It's by his grace. He's for you. But there will be a day when Jesus will come, and Jesus will judge the world. He will separate the sheep 
from the goats, the believers from the unbelievers. And Peter, in his last days, is reminding them, I think, of the things that are serious, that even as Peter's talking about the mockers, I think that part of Peter's thinking, these are people that are being led astray themselves, and they're following after their own lusts, and the gospel of Jesus wants to even engage the soul of the mocker. And as we look around in our day and age, I, I, I think now more than ever, the, the skeptic and the doubter are more prevalent than ever before. Because the skeptics and the doubters of our time have watched Christians take advantage of people. They've watched us not actually walk out that which we believe is truth. So there's this judgment that will come, but he goes on in verse 8 to say, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. And I don't think this is some mathematical equation that's being presented here like, ah, one equals a thousand, and we need to get into this whole mathematical. I think what he's saying is, in the Lord's eyes, time doesn't even exist. It's going to happen. When we talk about the imminent return of the Lord, it doesn't matter if it happens in a thousand years or it happens in a year. Why should that change the way you live now? And I think it's so interesting to think back on movements of Christians over time that have been really fired up to follow after Jesus because they were told that Jesus was coming back at a certain time. And so they'd get fired up about him for a season because they're awaiting his return. But then when it doesn't happen, they, their relationship with him wanes and they sort of walk away because they were waiting for his return. But if in God's eyes, there really is no such thing as time, he exists out of time, and he's coming back regardless. Why does it matter if he's coming back tomorrow or in a thousand years? How does that change the way you live today? And I think that's Peter's message. A thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. It just doesn't matter. What matters is that he will come back. And then he says in verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, meaning the Lord is not, some, some versions say loitering, like the Lord is not just hanging back and chilling and like, just like, yeah, you know, I'm just going to do it when I want to. Like, he, he's not slow about it. He's moving and he's actually amongst us now. And for the last 2,000 years since he died and rose again, he has been on the move in his church and he hasn't stopped. He's been relentless for 2,000 years in pursuit of mankind, the mocker the false teacher. He's in pursuit of the lost. He's not slow. He's not chilling and waiting back. And I wonder for you and I, how does that change the way we live? If the Lord is not slow, why are we sitting back loitering and waiting and hanging out? Why aren't we living every single day as though it's our last? And we say that all the time, like this whole idea of carpe diem, like seize the day and, and make the most of it. And that applies to our hobbies. It applies to the things that are fun in our life. It applies to buying our house and our careers and stacking up cash in the bank and doing all these things. But then it doesn't, we disregard our relationship with the Lord with that statement. So we're like, what's my... Um, you know, what are all my bucket list items that I want to accomplish in my life? Like seize the day, take advantage of it. I'm going to live my life to the fullest. Well, hello, believer. 
Living your life to the fullest means looking at every opportunity you've been given every single day to make God glorified in your life, to bring him honor, to share him with others, because you know that on a regular basis, you're surrounded by those that do not know him. Talk about seize the day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. And listen to this last part, but is patient towards you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to what? I think it's interesting there that it doesn't say, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to be saved. It actually says for all to come to repentance. Repentance is a big thing to God. What is repentance? Somebody blurted it out to me. Turning? It's turning. Right? It's leaving behind what you once were to turn your heart and attention towards Christ. Repentance is asking for forgiveness, turning towards the Lord and never looking back. And when he says, not wishing for any to perish, but all for all to come to repentance, it actually is the Lord's heart that everybody would come to know him. All. That none would perish. That all would come to repentance and experience life everlasting in Christ himself. As I like prepare a message every week, I always try to think of like what's one big takeaway, like what's one big theme, or or or, or what is like one concise point that I can make. And man, there are times when I get in the Word and I read through a text, and I, like even in sermon group this week, we were like, well, that text pretty much preaches itself. It doesn't really need an explanation from Chris. And as I was looking through this, um, I thought it was interesting, this one faithless question from the mockers, like, where is the promise of his coming? And it made me think very simply that in the last days, which I would call anything post-Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that in the last days, there will be those that have hope in a future promise and those that mock those with the future promise and no in-between. Jesus is coming. And so to not stray from this text, because it's not a pretty thing for those who refuse to believe, and it's why we who do believe must have a sense of the Holy Spirit-inspired urgency about us. We don't know when Jesus is going to shout, come up. 
We don't know when that day is going to happen. It could be any time. There's absolutely nothing that has to happen first. There's no prophecy that has to be fulfilled. Um, there's nothing like unfulfilled and like waiting to happen that has to take place before Christ comes back. For It could happen tomorrow for all that we know. But what we do know is that it's going to happen and that it will be in the twinkling of an eye and it could happen right now. It will happen. And so read these words as one who cares about those who are going to perish, honestly. If you feel the weight of that, you should feel the weight of that. Because we don't know when he's coming, but we do know that there's those who are lost right now that desperately need him. And so read these words as one who cares about those who will perish and as one who knows the truth and therefore has some sort of obligation to shout out the warning to everybody else. Like, stop doing that before you get cancer, you know? Like, you tell somebody, don't smoke a cigarette, man. You're going to get cancer. Like, there's warnings all over that stuff. Don't go do that thing. But yet, when it comes to Jesus, we're not out there sending the warning sign. Like, don't go do that. Live your life for Jesus. You're about to step off the edge of a cliff, and I want to share with you the life that's offered to you in Christ. Where's that urgency that maybe once existed in you that maybe doesn't exist anymore? And he says, again, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so I'll ask this question. Who's the ungodly? Is it just people that we see as evil and wicked and bad and nasty? No. The ungodly are any of those without God. That's what ungodly means, those without God. Anyone without Christ. And I'll ask you this question. Do any of you in this room know people that do not know Jesus? One of you? All of you. Like, you should feel this. And not feel this in a condemnatory manner, but feel this because the Spirit of God that's moving in you is actually drawing you to people to share the life-giving message of Jesus with them, that they shall not perish. When he talks about the fact that he wishes that none would perish, how do you think it is that they're going to hear about Jesus himself? You. He sent you as the messenger. You're the one that he's placed on this earth for such a time as this to seize the day and make his name known. Do you believe the eyewitnesses, these apostles who gave their lives, who died violent deaths in the name of this one Jesus that they constantly proclaimed would one day come back? Do you believe this? And so I'll ask this question one more time. Then what are we doing here? What are we doing here? If we believe this, what are we doing here? Because Jesus is coming and God isn't slow. He's coming. So I want to pray for us. And um, I, I really do want to ask that God grant you this privilege of being stirred up this morning. To feeling this weight a bit. Again, not in a condemnatory or guilty fashion. But to feel the weight of what it means to bear a gift that God actually intended to share with the world through you. 
Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come before you this morning, and Lord, it, it seems like an honor and a privilege to have a gift within us that has the potential of changing the world altogether, providing not just hope and not just love and joy and peace, but actually providing salvation, actually providing forgiveness of sins. And um, Lord, I pray for your church, Lord, that we would be stirred up as Peter talks about, that we would be stirred up by this idea that you are coming back. And that for the time being, until you do, you've asked us to be these messengers to bear your name to the world. And so I pray, Jesus, uh, for those in this room that feel as though their faith in you has waned a little bit, um, I pray for those in this room that have listened to the voice of the mocker and they're full of skepticism and doubt. And Jesus, no amount of words in the world could change their mind or convince them it has to be your spirit. And so I pray, God, by your spirit, by your power, that you would speak to those in this room that um, doubt, that are skeptics, or that are even searching. I pray by your spirit that you begin to meet them where they're at, Jesus. And for those in this room that bear this gift and um, have just struggled with sharing it, have struggled with having a sense of urgency with regards to the gift that you've entrusted to us, I pray, Jesus, that you would begin to unleash something in your church. God, as we know that there's so many around us that need this message of Christ, and we are the ones who you've entrusted this gift to. God, I, I thank you for your church in this room. I thank you for each soul represented here. And I pray, Jesus, that as we leave this afternoon, that we would leave changed, God, and that we would leave stirred up, that we would leave with an intentionality that we didn't have prior, God, with an urgency that didn't exist prior. Lord, that we would understand that we just can't sit still, that we just can't sit back in the same way that you have been moving and working. Um, God, for the last 2,000 years, you've been on the move in and through your church. You actually are calling us to get off the bench and to begin to move and go as you lead. And so I pray, Jesus, that you have your way with the people in this room. Lord, that your love and your grace would abound in their lives, that you give them amazing relationships with people that they can invest in, love on, and share Christ with. And I ask again, Jesus, that as we leave, this whole idea would be stirring in our head with regards to why do we do what we do if we've been entrusted with such a great gift, God. And if we're just gonna sit around, God, then there's no need to even do this. We're not playing games. And so I pray, Jesus, that we would take it seriously, that we would um, really walk, Lord, in, in the truth um, that you've revealed to us and live as though it is truth. Jesus, thank you, um, God, for your continued love and your grace for us. And I pray your blessing and your empowerment of each person in this room throughout this next week. In your name we pray. Amen.